do you want God to use you? You say, of course I do. What's more important than God using me? Well, let me ask you this. Have you given everything to him? Well, he doesn't necessarily want everything. Yes, he does. Present yourself to him as a living and holy sacrifice. He doesn't want half. He doesn't want 75. He wants all of who you are and all of what you have. Maybe you're facing some monumental problem this morning. You're facing maybe some spiritual challenge, some ministry that God has given you that he wants to use you to perform. Give it to the Lord. See, our natural tendency is to look simply through human eyes for natural solutions and to miss what God can do when he's added to the equation. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The God of the Impossible. Pastor Carl has been preaching from the book of John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. And thus far, he has addressed the multitude that came and the miracle that happened. Today, he will conclude as he preaches on the monarchy that was refused. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. George Mueller, a great man of faith who ran orphanages in the United Kingdom during the 19th century. At one time, he had as many as 10,000 children in his orphanages. You ought to read biographies of great men and women of God. They will challenge you in your faith. And as I read his biography, I remember on one occasion when he asked a little boy, as he would ask different children each day to pray and to give thanks for the food, and the little boy said, for what? Everybody knew the cupboards were empty and there was no food in the place. So Mueller bowed his head and he said, Father, I thank you that you've been faithful, that you've met the needs that we have had time and time and time again, and so we thank you for this food. And no sooner had he said amen, there was a knock on the door. And a bread truck had broken down right in front of the orphanage. And in came a man with all these loaves of bread. And it wasn't five minutes later, a milk truck came up. And this man said, God woke me up last night at 3 o'clock. I couldn't sleep. I didn't want to do it. But I realized that I need to give you all the milk that's in my truck. And God supplied. And so here's the disciples. They watched their Lord giving thanks And notice it says he distributed to those who were seated. The distribution of the bread, as the other Gospels indicate, went from his hands to the disciples' hands to the multitudes. That's very important. Likewise, also of the fish, as much as they needed. Far beyond the little tidbit that a few hundred denarii could supply, the people ate until they were full and they were satisfied and there was much left over. Now, liberal theologians who cannot accept the miracles of the Bible will always try to explain them away. Some have argued that ahead of time, Jesus Christ with his disciples prearranged the miracle, that there was a cave behind them, and that the disciples were in there, and Jesus had his flowing robes and handed the guys, they handed him the baskets, and out they came. Listen, that's ridiculous. Not to mention, just logically, where would you get that much food to feed 20,000 people? Not to mention, this is a hungry crowd. You would have smelt that bread. You would have smelt that fish. Another liberal theologian, William Barclay, why evangelicals buy his books left and right are beyond me. 
He's dead now. He died in 1978. But he denied most of the miracles in the Gospels. And he said, well, that little boy gave his lunch and he shamed the crowd into opening up their lunch boxes and it was all shared about. Sheer nonsense. When you read the context of what's happened, there's nothing hidden here. Not to mention the people who recognize a miracle has taken place. They want to make him king. If this was just some mass psychological trick, the crowd never would have responded in the way they did. No, God said it, I believe it. That settles it in my mind. You know, mathematically, 200 denarii, five loaves, and two sardines can't feed 20,000 people. And may I say, had we assigned a committee to the problem, they would have concluded it's impossible. But what we need are the mathematics of a miracle. Five loaves plus two fishes plus the Lord God can mean anything. Whatever he wants it to mean. God put the key in the front door. If you can believe Genesis 1-1, you can believe anything written in the Bible. That's why the devil is spending all of his time in this generation to attack Genesis 1-1 through the false doctrine of evolution. Verse 12. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. The Lord lavishly supplied and nothing was lost. That's good stewardship, but far more than good stewardship is involved in this miracle. Verse 13, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. 20,000 people had been fed, 12 baskets were filled. And again, all Gospels draw the attention to that number. Every disciple had a basket full of leftovers. The Lord was trying to imprint into their psyche, into their soul, what he could do if they would put their faith in him, that he is the God of the impossible. And so there's the multitude that came. There's the miracle that happened. Finally, I want us to consider the monarchy that was refused. Notice verse 14. When, therefore, the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth. The prophet who is to come into the world. The people see this sign and they're absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ is the expected prophet to come into the world that Moses wrote about. Jot down in the margin again, Deuteronomy 18.15. Next to verse 14. Deuteronomy 18.15. Then the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet, said Moses, speaking prophetically. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen, you shall listen to him. And then he said in verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him, command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now, the Old Testament, if you remember, predicted that the Messiah, when he came, would fill three offices. The office of prophet, priest, and king. And so Moses wrote of a prophet whom, by the way, fit the Lord Jesus perfectly. You say, that's just your understanding of the verse. No, that's what the apostles say in Acts 3. When they get up, Peter, on the second sermon that he gives after Pentecost, he quotes Deuteronomy 18 15 through 19 that we just read, saying that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled that prophecy. 
Jesus was a prophet. He was the prophet. He was the prophet of prophets. Now, far more than a prophet. He's the son of God. He's God in human flesh. He's God incarnate. But he nonetheless is the prophet that Moses had predicted. And that's why the Lord said, whatever he shall speak in my name, I'll require it of you. Why? Because the Bible says there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So what you do with Christ, God will require it of you. He will determine what he will do with you. Jesus, verse 15, Therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, the people's assessment of what Moses wrote was correct. Jesus was indeed the prophet. But what they wanted him to do was wrong. Now, you can understand, if he's the prophet, then he's the king, he is the priest. And if he's to be like Moses, then he'll have some kind of kingly role. What did Moses do? Moses was used of God to deliver the children of Israel out of the oppression of Egypt. And so he came with great signs and wonders and miracles in order to authenticate to those children of Israel that he was God's man. And so they assume the same of Christ. He's got all the credentials. We've seen him do miracles all day. He just fed thousands of people. He's the prophet. Let's make him king so he can free us from the oppression of Rome. After all, he'd been preaching about the kingdom of God, Luke 9, 11 tells us, all day long. But they totally missed his message. Yes, he's the king, but not the kind of king they wanted him to be. Now, his concept of a kingdom is far different from theirs. Theirs was secular. Theirs was material. His is spiritual. He told Nicodemus, you must be born a second time in order to enter the kingdom of God. And he told him that this new birth and entrance into the kingdom would come through his own death and resurrection. And so they want a prophet to free them from Roman oppression but he has another kind of kingdom. Before Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Jesus knew that his kingdom was not of this world that he would not come and take them by siege warfare, that his kingdom would be established by his own death and resurrection. He was not going to Jerusalem to wield the spear and to bring the judgment. He was going to Jerusalem to take the spear and to bear the judgment that our sin deserves. And so the prospect of becoming a king as the multitudes wanted him was just another temptation, as we saw, came from the evil one in Matthew 4. It's rather ironic. This one, who came as king, who came to offer a kingdom to man, the king of kings, they missed it because of their warped understanding of the kingdom. They just wanted to use Christ. Now, when John, remember, comes to the end of this gospel, he says, these have been written that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He said, I chose the miracles that I chose to communicate a very important message. So let me give you three applications. Jot them down this morning. If you don't need them this morning, I promise you, you're going to need them at some time in the near future. 
What is the message that comes from this miracle? By the way, we'll look at these in more depth when we come to the discourse that follows. But lesson number one I learned, there is no problem too big for God to solve. There is no problem too big for God to solve. Now, some of you listening to me today are like Philip, who are notorious for seeing things that cannot be done. There's one in every church. There's one in every uh, Christian organization, one in every missionary outfit, one on every church staff team, one in every Christian school. They're notorious for seeing what cannot be done. Now, I hope your name is not Philip. I don't have you in mind. Please understand. In fact, we named one of our sons Grant Philip Brogy after the evangelist Philip. But I'm talking to people who see it as their specialty for what cannot take place and who are very often paralyzed by what appear to be impossible problems. Maybe you're listening to me today and you have what seems to be an impossible problem in your life. Would you take that problem and then double it again and then double it again? And then I would ask you, is it too big for God? Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. So number one, I learned from this miracle that there is no problem too big for God to solve. Number two, I learned that there is no person too small for God to use. No person too small for God to use. Now, when God solves problems, typically he uses people. And we learned this morning that in this instance, he used a little boy. Philip said, there's a lad here who's got five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these to so many people? A little lad and a little lunch. The cheapest of bread, the smallest of fish, just a little boy with a little lunch. Meager in quality, meager in quantity, but the Lord took that little boy's lunch and he blessed it and he's still blessing us today through what that man did, that little boy did. What happened? A miracle happened. Humanly, it was impossible. But when the Lord Jesus Christ touches what we give to him, all things are possible. I want to ask you a very simple question this morning. Do you want God to use you? You say, of course I do. What's more important than God using me? Well, let me ask you this. Have you given everything to him? Well, he doesn't necessarily want everything. Yes, he does. Present yourself to him as a living and holy sacrifice. He doesn't want half. He doesn't want 75. He wants all of who you are and all of what you have. Maybe you're facing some monumental problem this morning. You're facing maybe some spiritual challenge, some ministry that God has given you that he wants to use you to perform. Give it to the Lord. See, our natural tendency is to look simply through human eyes for natural solutions and to miss what God can do when he's added to the equation. God here uses just a little boy and his little lunch, and when it's given to the Lord Jesus and he touches it and he blesses it, God uses it in a mighty way. Hey, you may be here. Maybe you're just a little kid this morning. God can use you. I had a little eight-year-old boy in my office recently, and I hadn't thought about it in years. And I said to him, I, I knew he was a Christian, and I said, you know what? I said, God can use you as an eight-year-old boy in a tremendous way. And I remembered, I said, there was a little boy in our church, a little red-headed boy years ago. 
And he was eight years old. And he used to badger his soccer coach every time he went and practiced to come to this church over and over and over and over and over again. Finally, out of sheer persistence, like the friend who's banging at his neighbor's door for bread, he said, okay, I'll come. And he came, he and his wife. And their marriage was on the verge of a divorce. And I had the opportunity to meet with them and to lead them both to Jesus Christ. And about a year ago, he came to one of the discovery class functions we had. I hadn't seen him in six or seven years. And he said, Pastor, I want you to know I'm a youth pastor in an independent Baptist church up in North Carolina. What God can do when you give it to him and ask him to bless it and to multiply it for his glory. Don't insult God by saying, God cannot use me, because he wants to use you. And God typically uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Do you remember what Paul told the church at Corinth? He said, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Please note, he did not say, not any wise, not any mighty, not any noble but not many. And by the way, if you're looking for a church where all the beautiful people are, where all the social elites are, where all the intelligentsia are, you won't find it typically in a Bible-believing church. Because very often those are the very things that will keep people out of the kingdom of God. And so Paul reminds us God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are that no man should boast before God. God loves taking ordinary people to do extraordinary things through them. God used the little widow. She came and she put two mites in the treasury. And Jesus watched her as she put her offering and gave it to God as he watches what you do when you give your offering to God. And he commented on it and he said she gave more than all of them. Now there were many rich people at the temple that day. But Jesus didn't say she gave more than any of them. But she gave more than all of them in God's economy. She gave more than all, like Mary, who broke that alabaster jar of perfume. She didn't put just a little on his feet. She went for broke. She gave all of that costly perfume. And to this day, it continues to linger wherever the gospel is preached. And we're talking about her today. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. But the question is... Will you let God use you? Now, let me tell you something. You may be too big for God for him to use, but you're not too small for God for him to use you. God uses small people, small things, totally dedicated to him. Number one, there's no problem too big for God to solve. Number two, there's no person too small for God to use. Third and finally, I learned from this miracle with a message there is no hunger too deep for God to satisfy. Now, he did a miracle that day in Cana of Galilee. 
But that miracle was not significant just because he fed thousands of people. No, the significance of the miracle is given fully as we're going to study in the discourse that follows. And what is so significant is that it illustrates a deeper truth, the need for people to have their spiritual needs satisfied through Jesus Christ. Let's fast forward down to verse 25. We're getting ahead, but we'll be going here. Verse 25, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now remember, after he feeds the 5,000, they want to make him king. Jesus orders the disciples in a boat. He goes up to a mountain and pray. Eventually, he's going to show up in the boat and instantly on the other side of the river. And they're going to figure, man, how did you get here? We didn't see you get in the boat when you left. Jesus doesn't really answer their question, but he says, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. The reason you're following me is because the entertainment is great and the food is super. That's the only reason you want me. And then he gives them a command. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures the eternal life which the Son of Man shall give to him. For on him the Father, even God, has set a seal. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom you have sent. Now, that's a major lesson taught in this miracle, that Jesus Christ can satisfy the very depths of your soul, and only he can do it. See, the problem with these people is they sought that which perished, and Jesus wanted them to see something beyond that. Next month, God willing, we're going to break ground on a brand new 68,000 square foot building. You know, when you build a building like this, there's people, as they said when we built the first one, I had a couple people say, why are you building such a big building? At the time, it was the largest auditorium. I think it may still be in Beaufort County. They said, why are you building such a building? And when we build this next one, three times the size of this, folks are going to say, why are you building such a big building? Why don't you use some of that money to feed the poor? Well, I would just say to them, I'd say to the banker, why don't you sell your bank and take the proceeds and feed the poor? Why don't you take your car dealership and sell the dealership and feed the poor? Why don't you take your restaurant and sell a restaurant and feed the poor? Why? Because people need money. People need cars. People need food. And I'll tell you what else. People need Jesus Christ. And that's why we're building the building. Now, have you ever heard, have you ever heard of the social gospel? Do you know what the social gospel is? The social gospel is based on the premise that the good news that Jesus Christ asks us to bring, that's what the word gospel means, as you know, good news, is basically to care for our neighbor, to help the poor, to feed the sick, to care for people who are in need. And their message, basically, that they believe the church is to take is that we are to reform society. Now, that kind of thinking is predicated on the false notion that what men need are the food, is the food that perishes. But that's not what they need. Now, there's nothing wrong with feeding the poor and helping the helpless. Very often, we need to show the love of Christ. And quite often, you can't share the gospel with a man whose stomach is empty. But understand the emphasis of the social gospel is on the temporary, while the emphasis of the saving gospel is on that which is eternal. 
The best a social gospel can do for a man is to make this world a better place to go to hell from. People need more than soap and soup. They need a savior. They need salvation. And only Christ can give that. He's going to go on and teach that. Verse 35, he'll say, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never hurt thirst. He is the only one who can satisfy the depths of your soul. But the devil is so slick to offer you cheap substitutes. Pascal, the 17th century philosopher, physicist, and mathematician said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. But the devil is so slick, he'll give you just a little bit of religion so that you miss the real thing. In the words of Chad Walsh from his book, Christians on the 20, in the 21st Century, he says he will vaccinate you with a mild case of Christianity in order to protect you from getting the real disease. Now, do you know Christ is your Savior? You can spin your wheels until now on the day you die trying to fill your life with relationships, with money, with things, but you will always come up empty. And if you are a Christian, if you are born again, don't let the devil trick you into seeking the vain temporal things of this world because they will never satisfy the depths of your soul. Only Christ can do that. And you have an ever-living, everlasting soul that only everlasting life, a relationship with him, can meet. Let's stand together for prayer. Now, our Father... This morning, I thank you that you've given us this opportunity and privilege to study your word together. I pray today for someone who is here who really doesn't have the assurance that if the trumpet of God were to sound today and Christ were to descend, that he would receive them to himself and take them to be with him in heaven. Maybe you're here and you're saying, well, I hope I go to heaven. I think if I died today or Christ came, I might go. But you can't say beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know for certain. Well, I want to tell you, friend, you can know. The Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. But you can only know it through a substitute. Through the eternal God who left heaven, took on upon himself human flesh, lived a perfect life, and there on that cross... He became your substitute and the punishment for all of your sin, past, present, and future was laid upon him. So if you will call upon this risen Lord, he will save you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. A man told me recently, he said, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. I don't think God can accept me. I said, what part of whosoever excludes you? Whosoever will may come. Whoever will call upon his name will be saved. But you must come in faith. Christ has paid your debt, but you must come in faith. Faith is taking God at his word, believing that he is able to do what he said he can do. In simple faith, I wonder this morning if somebody here would say, Lord Jesus, I cannot save myself. I am bankrupt. Lord Jesus, Save me. Whoever will call upon his name will be saved. Our Father, we thank you that there is no problem 
too big for you to solve, that there's no person too small for you to use, and there's no hunger too deep that you cannot satisfy. Help us to take the timeless, eternal principles from this miracle that those of us who have found life might truly experience it in His name, and we ask it for His glory. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John. Our calling at Search the Scriptures is to lead believers into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and to grow believers in that relationship. If you can help support this mission with a one-time or regular gift, click the Give button in either the Search the Scriptures app or visit our website, searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.